If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 15. We'll be in verses 16 to 47. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 47. So we are reaching the apex of Mark's gospel. You see, Jesus' life and ministry has been directed towards this specific event. In Jesus' earthly ministry, three times he predicted his suffering and death. And in the gospel of Mark, he depicts Jesus as a servant, where he has served many people in the ultimate way that he would serve is by giving himself up as a sacrifice for sin to atone for the sins of his people. In fact, his mission can be described in the language of service and sacrifice. The theme of Mark, the very verse I would say that summarizes the gospel is Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he would say, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, in this morning's passage, he will, we will see him fulfill that very purpose, where he laid his life down on the cross. And it's through his death on the cross where the curse of sin will be reversed. You see, what God promised back in Genesis 3, when sin entered into the world, what the sacrificial system in the Old Testament pointed to, in the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, it all finds its fulfillment in today's passage where Christ bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners to save us. You see, Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, it is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. It is the heart of the Christian's confession. For through it, we have salvation from judgment. And that salvation came through judgment as Jesus vicariously bore it on our behalf. You see, through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we have forgiveness through sacrifice, life through death, reconciliation through condemnation. Beloved, there are not enough words that I can use to describe the significance of this event. So let's stand and read. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 47. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, the king of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they had crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was, the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. 
Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it, was e when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leba sabatani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he brought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the mother of Joseph were watching where he was laid. You may be seated. You see, in this morning's passage, we will see how Jesus saves his people. And our big idea would communicate it in the way that he saves. Our big idea is this. That Jesus saves through his suffering and death. Jesus saves through his suffering and death. And we have two scenes that we would see from this passage. The first scene is Jesus' shameful humiliation by man. Jesus' shameful humiliation by man. And second, we will see Jesus' saving death for man. Jesus' saving death for man. First, his shameful humiliation by man. You see, the humiliation of Jesus, it began after the verdict of crucifixion. First, he was scourged by Roman soldiers, where they had this whip with metal ends, and they was scourging his back, beating him severely. And though Jesus was scourged and humiliated, it's important for us to know that this was not a surprise to Jesus. As I've mentioned a number of times, I'll say it again, he predicted all of it, the sequential order of his suffering, and the specificity of his humiliation. Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. It says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise three days later. You see, Jesus, he described his humiliation in great detail. And here we begin to see it take place. You see, he was charged as the king of the Jews because he confessed to be the messianic king. The soldiers knew it, and so the soldiers derided him for it. You see, they had a depraved view of entertainment to the point to where they dressed Jesus. After beating him, they dressed him in the attire of a king put a purple robe around him, twisted a crown of thorns and caused him to suffer by shoving it on his head. They would mock him, bow before him, salute him, all in sarcasm, all in mockery to humiliate and tease him. You see, the ridicule revealed their actual view of Jesus. In their mind, he was no king but the scum of the earth dehumanized. He was viewed as a criminal. Well, in fact, he, was, he is God in the flesh, the eternal one who became man. And here we see the son being scorned. The maker of man has subjected himself to the mockery by man. The one who is the object of angels' worship has become the object of the soldier's ridicule. You see, he came to save sinners, and here he is being shamed by them. You see, if you combine this section with chapter 14, we'll see that his humiliation was done by Jew and Gentile, the religious and the irreligious, the self-righteous and pagans. Those who need him have scorned him. And we see it today, both Jew and Gentile, The religious and the irreligious still mock and deride Jesus, deriding our scripture, seeking to disprove him, mocking our Savior, scorning him. They have contempt upon the one who would show compassion, mocking the one who extends mercy, heaping up for themselves judgment for the day of judgment because they have refused to be saved by the Savior in the day of salvation. The humiliation begins to heighten as they feel, fulfill the execution. Look, at, look down at verse 20, part B, on down. It says, they led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' Jesus's cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not receive it. You see, the crucifixion, it is a cruel and degrading way to die. It was so shameful that the Romans would very rarely crucify their own. You see, through the crucifixion, it was publicly shameful And they did it to incite fear. And so the way that they would do it is they would have the criminal carry their own wooden beam throughout the city to publicly shame him, to incite fear in people so that they would not follow the one who's about to be crucified. 
don't believe in him, and so they are disgracing Jesus. They don't view him as a king, but a criminal. And the suffering that he underwent, it was so severe that he could not bear his own cross. And so they forced Simon to carry it all the way to Golgotha, which is a place that is shaped like a skull. And so they arrive at Golgotha, and look what happened next. Verse 24, on down. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was, the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. So they arrive. They pierced his hands to the cross. They pierced his feet to the cross where Jesus was lifted up to be crucified. And his crucifixion is emphasized in this section. It's mentioned three times in four verses. Now, as Jesus was crucified, there are two different purposes at play. You see, with the Romans, it was a political purpose. Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews by making the confession that he's the Messiah, which means that he is rivaling Caesar. In their minds, this is treason, and so it deserves capital punishment. But for the Jews, they had a theological purpose. You see, in, in the law, it says that a person who is hung on the tree is cursed by God. And so for the Jews, they didn't view Jesus as the Christ, but accursed, a blasphemer, one who was accursed by God. But little do they know is that Jesus was accursed not because he was a blasphemer, not because he was a sinner. He is sinless. He was accursed on behalf of the sins of his people. He was our representative bearing our curse in our place. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 will say that he was pierced, not for his transgressions because he has none. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. You see, it was we who rebelled against God, not him. It is we who deserve God's wrath, not him. And yet it was he who paid for it. Not us. You see, Jesus took upon himself the humiliation that we deserve. And it's because of God's grace. You see, friends, beloved, don't miss this. The humiliation that Jesus experienced. It was done by us and it was done for us. It was God's will to save us from judgment by his son bearing the cross. And as he was humiliated, he fulfilled scripture. As we read in Psalm 22, Jesus fulfills it. He is the righteous one who was nailed to the tree and they gambled for his clothes. He's also the righteous one, as Isaiah 53 prophesied, who died with the criminals. Isaiah 53 verse 12, he was counted among the rebels. You see, his humiliation, it wasn't aimless or coincidental, but it was purposeful and providential. As he endured, he was submitting to the will of God, fulfilling scripture to save sinners. Look at verse 29 on down. 
It says, those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. You see here, he's being mocked by Jews. They're shaking their heads at him. This fulfills what we read in Psalm chapter 22, verse 7. You see, in the unbelief of the Jews and the Sanhedrin, they demanded for Jesus to prove himself by coming down on the cross, from the cross. You see, what they have here is a misunderstanding of Jesus. They missed his person, his work, and his purpose. Because scripture prophesied that the Messiah would come, it prophesied that the Messiah's mighty acts that he would perform, and it prophesied that the Messiah would suffer vicariously for the sins of his people. And Jesus has come, he fulfilled many messianic prophecies as he made the lame walk, gave sight to the blind, made the mute speak. And here he's fulfilling the messianic prophecy of the, of the Christ dying for the sins of his people. You see, they have failed to grasp Jesus as Scripture presented him. And beloved, a failure to grasp Jesus as the Scriptures present, it results in one having different assumptions about Jesus. And one would conclude that Jesus is a failure or a phony. Let me unpack that real quick. You see, during that time, many believed that the Messiah would come and physically demolish and overthrow Rome. That was their expectation, and Jesus didn't meet it. People today, if you expect for Jesus to make your life easier or to give you your best life now, or to come and eradicate oppression and bring about complete social justice and harmony in this life, then you will conclude that Jesus is a failure and a phony and he should not be trusted. That's not to say that Jesus is indifferent, was indifferent towards Rome or that Jesus was apathetic or is apathetic towards suffering and injustice and oppression. That's not to say that the gospel doesn't have social ramifications. But that is to say that that is not the primary purpose for Jesus' coming. You see, he came to save sinners from judgment. You see, they said that he can't save himself. He never intended to save himself. His purpose in coming was to save others. It was to save us. He came on a rescue mission that would cost him his very life. And the way that he would save others is by remaining on the cross. You see, as he took the cross upon himself, he's bearing God's judgment for our sin. And y'all get this. Jesus could have came down, but he wouldn't and he didn't because his purpose in coming wasn't to silence the haters, but to save sinners. He didn't come to appease man but to please God. And God was pleased by him remaining on the cross. 
Because as he did, he took the cup of wrath that he was destined to take to save us. And we can tell, we know that God was pleased because the result of Jesus being on the cross, it is atonement. Our sins are covered. We who trust in him are forgiven. You see, they humiliated Jesus. And according to their view, Jesus failed miserably. But according to God's view, Jesus succeeded. You see, here we have the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the cross. You see, through the cross, you have victory through the image of defeat. For it was on the cross where Jesus crushed the serpent's head. It was on the cross where Jesus purchased our forgiveness. It is through his suffering on the cross where the curse was reversed. You see, in God's wisdom, through the wisdom of the cross, we see success through the picture of failure. God is flexing his mighty power through the picture of weakness. You see, from man's point of view, Jesus' cross was an instrument of torture and humiliation. And it was that, but that's not all that it was. Because from God's view, the cross is an instrument of redemption and our salvation. It is the only way that we would be saved. And it's through Jesus' suffering on the cross, through Jesus being nailed to the cross, that would lead to him being exalted, seated at the right hand of God. You see, this suffering, it was the very vehicle that took him to his enthronement and exaltation. You see, they thought that the suffering was an end but it was a means to the end. It was the very way that Christ would save us. You see, what Christ has accomplished on the cross is amazing. Y'all, is the only reason why we boast in the cross because of what Jesus did on the cross. It results in our salvation. You see, we, we see Jesus being shamefully insulted and humiliated and mocked by man, the very ones that he came to save. And y'all, as heartbreaking and as painful as Jesus endured through this humiliation, y'all, it was a thump in comparison to what he experienced on the cross from God the Father. So now let's see Jesus' saving death. Look at verses 33 on down, 33 and 34. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabbatani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? You see, here Christ, he's bearing the judgment for sin in our place. And y'all, this event is unique. So unique that creation was impacted by the crucifixion. Darkness covered the land during the afternoon. The time where the sun is rising, clearest day, you have darkness covering the land testifies to the uniqueness of what's happening. 
Anywhere else in scripture do you read when darkness covers the land? The ninth plague in the book of Exodus. Think about it. As God judged Pharaoh and Egyptians through darkness. They were judged for their rebellion. And do you guys know, you guys remember what came after the ninth plague? It was the Passover where they sacrificed the Passover lamb. When Israel was spared from judgment, Egyptian firstborns were killed and it brought about an exodus. Well, here at the cross, what we see is not sinners on the cross, but the sinless one, Jesus, who is our representative. And like in Exodus, here at the cross, darkness covers the land. And what's followed by this darkness is the death of the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ himself. And as he dies, he fulfills the Passover and he brings about a new exodus where all who trust in Jesus, we have been delivered from sin's penalty and liberated from its power, no longer slaves, but we have been made new because the Passover lamb was sacrificed in our place. Saved by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, how did Christ accomplish this? How did it happen? Well, it was because he was forsaken on our behalf. Verse 34, he says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? We saw this earlier in the scripture reading, Psalm chapter 22, David penned, and it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, from Genesis, God has determined that the just penalty for sin is death. It is his righteous judgment. You see, alienation from God is the consequence of sin against God. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says this, But your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. You see, our sins have separated us from a holy and righteous God who will by no means clear the guilty. And there's absolutely nothing that you or I or no one else can do in and of ourselves to bridge that gap. Not our works, not our volunteer hours, not our obedience or our quiet times. No amount of money can do it. There's absolutely nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to bridge that gap because we are sinful. We can't stop sinning. We need someone outside of us who is perfect to take upon himself the wrath that we deserve. And that's what God did through Jesus Christ. Where Jesus on the cross, according to his humanity, suffered the alienation that we rightfully deserve. He was forsaken for our sins. It was laid on him. You guys remember back in chapter 14, the very cup that he did not want to drink? Well, here he is drinking it. The cup of divine fury against sins. He took it upon himself. You see, on the cross, we have the sinless one, the righteous one, being regarded as if he was a sinner. 
he was treated as if he was an adulterer, as if he was a liar, as if he was a gossiper, sexually immoral, a slanderer, a thief, a homosexual, a murderer, a drunkard. He was bearing our sin. All those sins that we have committed, one sin that we've committed deserves God's wrath, deserves what Jesus took. You see, our sins was laid upon him, and so was God's judgment for our sins. That we who are sinners, that we who stand guilty before a holy and righteous God can be saved by God's grace. He took it upon himself, suffering and dying for us. You see, at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see God's justice and God's mercy meet. God's justice in that he condemned sin. He vindicated his holiness and righteousness and poured out his wrath. And we also see God's mercy in that he did not condemn sinners, but he condemned his son. As Jesus bore the judgment that we deserve. And all who trusted him. The debt has been canceled. Sins are forgiven. We go free. Because he took it for us. Only received by faith. Can't add to it. Can't perfect it. Sacrifice is once for all, completely forgiven and purified by the grace of God. And so, if you know yourself to not be a Christian, friends, I'm glad you're here. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that Christ would bear the penalty for sinners to save sinners. You see, God is holy and sin has earned his wrath. And it's through the cross that we see that God will condemn sin. But it's also through the cross we see God's love for sinners. You see, when we're wronged, we demand justice. But when we wrong others, we desire mercy. We all, we have wronged God. And yet God is extending mercy to us. We didn't beg him for it. We didn't convince him to do it. He, in his love, had this plan all along. And that mercy is extended through his son's sacrifice. You receive his mercy by receiving his son, the beloved one. Friends, if you're not a Christian, I would implore you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. You can be forgiven and be saved by God's grace. Any of our members can talk to you more after service. Here we see God's love for us. As God's wrath is satisfied through the sacrifice of his son. And as Jesus suffered, as usual, the Jews, they missed it. Look at verse 35 and 36. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. You see, as usual, they missed it. Now, why would they assume 
these things. Two reasons. One, Eloi sounds like Eli. And secondly, commentaries was helpful in this. Back then, there was an assumption that Elijah would come and rescue a righteous person in critical times. Now, there's no scripture to support that, just a view that they had. And obviously, it didn't happen. But look what did happen. Verse 37, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. You see, he gave up his life. His mission is completed. Redemption accomplished. And the reason why I say that is look at what took place afterwards. Verse 38, then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, in the temple, it was a place where God dwelt with man. And in the temple, there was a veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, that's where God's presence dwelt. You see, God dwelt with man, but man couldn't enter God's presence because God is holy, perfect, and pure. Man is sinful and unrighteous. And so if man were to enter God's presence, it would inevitably result in death. And this goes back all the way back to the garden. You see, what was lost in the garden was restored through the cross. You see, Eden was a temple garden. It was a place where God dwelt with man, where Adam walked with God. But when Adam rebelled against God, he was exiled from the garden, sent away from God's presence. Well, God wanted to dwell with man, and so through the tabernacle and the temple, God dwelt with man, but man couldn't enter God's presence and live. Only the high priest, he could come once a year, the Day of Atonement, and he had to bring blood with him. Where he had blood making sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of the people of Israel. You see, sin was the problem, and man can't rectify it. We can't rectify the situation, not our deeds, our dollars, our donations, our morality, our self-righteousness, number of quiet times. We cannot fix the situation. If the situation is going to be fixed, God will have to do it. And that's exactly what God did through Christ Jesus. As the Son of God became man and perfectly obeyed, and on the cross he suffered God's wrath for our sins, And here we see the result. The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. You see, like in Mark chapter 1, when God tore the heavens to declare that Jesus is God's beloved son, well, here God tore the curtain to declare that by God's grace, we have access to his presence through faith in Jesus. You see, our sin was dealt with through the cross of Christ. Where we have been cleansed, saved by God's grace. You see, our sin has exiled us from God's presence, but our Savior's death has brought us back. You see, through Jesus' death, we go from being barred to being welcomed, from being exiled to being invited. It is through Jesus' death where we get to draw near to God through faith in Christ. And when Christ returns, He will judge his enemies, those who mock him, who refuse to believe in them. 
They will bow down and they will experience his wrath. He will rescue his bride. He will renew the earth where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And God will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. No curtain, no veil, no more separated, only being with him for all of eternity. And it's all because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. These are the benefits that Christ has purchased for us. Until now, let me talk to the the kids and the teens. You see, in life, there are requirements that have to be met to have access to prestigious things. You know, if you want to make the honor society, you got to make really good grades. You want to make an all-star team, you have to have the most outstanding stats. You want to be first chair in the band, well, you have to be the best in your instrument. But if you want to be in God's presence, you have to be holy. You see, in the previous lists, you can merit your way to potentially gaining access to those things. But no one in and of themselves can gain access to God's presence. You see, you like me, you're sinful. You sin against God in word and deed and thought and motive. And like me, you need Jesus. You need someone to suffer in your place and you need his blood to cleanse you. That is the only way that we can have access. Just like in a shower, how water cleanses us from the dirt, Jesus' blood cleanses us from our sins where through faith in him we stand holy and blameless. And so if you are a child and you have not trusted in Jesus, I would implore you this very day to receive Christ by faith that you may draw near to God. You see, we see Jesus' death. It accomplished the tearing of the curtain. It also accomplished, it also caused a confession from a Gentile. Look at verse 39. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. You see, the centurion was struck by how Jesus died. The one who oversaw Jesus' crucifixion. Now he has seen, excuse me, now he has seen other crucifixions in the past. He's watched people die, be delirious and hallucinate. But here, he sees Jesus be in total control. That he gave up his life. And so he witnesses it and he concludes that this one was the son of God. You see, he understood Jesus' identity in light of Jesus' suffering and death. Now, in Mark's gospel, there are three times when Jesus' identity is confessed. It's the beginning, the middle, and the end. In the beginning, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark makes known that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In the middle of Mark's gospel, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And here at the end of the book, the centurion makes a confession that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, y'all, I believe that this centurion got saved. And the reason why I say that is because no one witnesses the crucifixion of the Son of God and concludes that he is the Son of God apart from God's regenerating work, apart from God revealing it to him. And y'all, this confession 
it teaches us at least two things. Definitely more, but at least two. Number one, that Christ came to save Jew and Gentile. You see, his identity was confessed by a Jew and by a Gentile, by Peter and the centurion. Both Jew and Gentile are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So what this means is that our ethnicity or our sociological background is not a barrier for salvation. Both black, all black, white, Asian, Indian, people of all nations, whether you're from Midtown, Germantown, South Memphis, Binghampton, anyone can believe in Jesus and be saved by God's grace. You just have to trust in his son. And secondly, it teaches us that even the greatest sinner can be saved by God's grace. You see, if there's one in this passage that was probably voted least likely to be saved, it would be the centurion. He oversaw Jesus' execution. In fact, he may have participated in Jesus' humiliation. If there was one that you would think who God would condemn first, you probably would have guessed him, the one who oversaw the execution of God's son. And yet, what we see is that he is the one who God would save first. You see, what this shows us is that there is no sin that is too great that God can't forgive. Now, some of you may be saying, well, pastor, you don't know me. I've done terrible things in my past. To which I would say, so have I. And I will also say, you didn't oversee the execution of God's son. If God would save and forgive him, if God would save and forgive me, then God can save and forgive any who trust in Jesus. He is a gracious God and mighty to save. In fact, Christ came to save sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says, For the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, y'all, our sins are great, but God's grace is greater. And y'all, the centurion wasn't the only one impacted by Jesus' suffering and his death. You see, Simon of Cyrene, the man who carried Jesus' cross, you see, many believe that Simon was impacted and transformed by what he witnessed to the point of believing in Jesus and telling his family. Did you guys see that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus? Some of y'all may have thought that this may have been a random observation, a random detail to include, but it was purposeful. And we have to remember, let me break this down real quick. One thing we must remember is that Mark's audience are Roman Christians. And it's likely that these Roman Christians knew Alexander and Rufus. Now, why would I say such a thing? Because at the end of Romans chapter 16, the letter that Paul wrote to Christians in Rome, he mentioned Rufus by name. Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. You see, it is likely that Simon was enamored by what he witnessed to the point of trusting in Jesus, and he told his family about Jesus, and by God's grace, they trusted in Jesus. You see, when you're impacted 
by Jesus, transformed by the gospel. When you love him, you can't help but share him with others, especially those who you love, which is your family. And so this should instruct us and encourage us that we should be proclaiming the good news of Christ to everyone, especially our family. And it should encourage us knowing that God can use us to lead our family to Christ. You see Jesus suffering and death is witnessed by many, number of women, as we see in verses 40 and 41. With these women, they loved and followed Jesus. They sacrificed for him and served him. They witnessed his death and some will witness his burial. Look at verses 42 on down. When it was already evening because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. You see, this section, it emphasized Jesus' death. Where we have Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, he boldly comes to Pilate. And it's bold because Joseph wasn't a family member, nor was he a known follower of Jesus. And it's bold because by requesting Jesus' body, He's showing his faith in Jesus. And remember, Jesus was crucified. The charge is that he's the king of the Jews. And so this request shows his faith in Jesus. Which could have resulted in Joseph suffering like Jesus. You see, Joseph counted the costs and said that Jesus is worth it. And this should instruct us. Because as Christ followers, we are to boldly confess Christ and identify with him, not only when it's convenient, but even when it is costly. And it's because Jesus is worth it. In light of his sacrifice for us, there is no sacrifice too great for him. Jesus died quickly. To Pilate's surprise, normally crucifixion takes days. This one took hours. The death is confirmed. They give the body to Joseph. He receives it. He buried Jesus, and women watched. You see, our passage ends on a minor key. Things look grim. And y'all, it all happened as Jesus predicted. Mark chapter 10, I'll read it again. He says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Jesus predicted his burial in chapter 14, verse 8, where Jesus says, See, she has anointed my body in advance for burial. But y'all, that's not where it ends, because Jesus also predicted his resurrection. Chapter 10, verse 34, the very end, it says, And he will rise after three days. You see, Jesus will rise as he promised. If the other predictions were fulfilled, then we could certainly 
believe and know for certain that he will resurrect from the grave. And y'all, spoiler alert, he rose from the grave. We don't worship a dead Jesus, but the risen Christ who rules and who reigns. You see, he has saved us through his death and his resurrection. Beloved, may we marvel at our Savior's saving work. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we praise you for your finished work of salvation through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That through him we are reconciled, that our sins are forgiven, saved by your grace, never to be forsaken, because Christ was forsaken on our behalf. Now we praise you that the guilt has been canceled, the price has been paid, we've been adopted. Father, may we marvel. May we not get over it. May we never try to graduate from it. We praise you that we have access to you through our faith in him, that it was finished when he died. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.